0: Hello and welcome to this tax and fiduciary podcast brought to you by Investec. I'm your host Nozipo Shabalala. Now, this podcast is a part of our global series that will take a closer look at the sort of things you need to know when either moving to a foreign jurisdiction or if you hold assets in that jurisdiction. In this conversation, we are specifically focused on the U.S. market. Now, you can also listen to our podcast about the UK, Mauritius and Australia by clicking on the separate links on this page. We're going to be talking about tax implications for US citizens, residents, green card holders and dual residents. We'll focus on tax law and estate planning, setting up and maintaining family trusts, estate and gift tax, and we'll also land on free arrival advice, citers and beneficiaries. We've got a lot coming up, and so I'm quite happy that we're joined by two subject experts who are going to help us clarify a number of questions or any concerns that you might have in regard to the topics that we are focused on. I'm joined by Renee Fanzel and Stanley Barg, so let me say hello to them first. Welcome, Renee and Stan. Hi, Lozie. It's always great to be here with you.
1: And hi, thanks very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. Welcome to you both. Now, for purpose of our listeners, I'd like to just uh, share a little bit about who these subject experts are. Renee is a joint head looking after tax and fiduciary for Investec. She brings a wealth of experience as an international expert on tax and estate planning. She's joined by Stanley Bard, who is a partner in the New York office of Kozusko Harris-Duncan, where he practices tax law and estate planning. And this with a particular emphasis on planning for international families. He also advises clients on matters pertaining to U.S. income, estate and gift taxation, the establishment and maintenance of trusts. This is both U.S. and non-U.S. The structural investments in the U.S. by U.S. and non-U.S. persons, as well as expatriation from the U.S. and related matters. Now, I'm going to kick off this conversation by coming to you, Renee, first. And the question to you is, why are we looking at the U.S. markets in this podcast?
2: Thank you, Nozi, and welcome, everyone. So, Nozi, the United States, together with the UK and Australia, are quite popular jurisdictions for our clients, not only from an investment perspective, but also for their children to study and live abroad. You know, we often refer to our clients as global citizens of the world, as they often then not have beneficiaries residing abroad and they have assets situated offshore, the US being a wildlife jurisdiction for both of these. The US is therefore very popular from a residency perspective, and our clients often invest in the so called green card or EB5 investment to have the optionality to move abroad should they wish to. But most importantly, we are. Also speaking about the US today, because it's quite a complex jurisdiction when it comes to tax and estate planning. And we've seen our clients encounter many unintended consequences because of poor or no planning. We also often find that clients just hop on a plane and enter a country without knowing the rules and taxes associated not only to leaving South Africa, but also associated to such a move. And I guess, Nozzy, that's why we're here today speaking to one of our experts in the US stand, to help us and our clients navigate through the U.S.
0: complexities. And that's a beautiful way of leading into you, Stan, where Renee is highlighting the complexity of the specific jurisdiction. And so let's get into U.S. citizenship and residence, Stan. Under what conditions will the U.S. look to tax individuals?
1: Sure. Thanks very much. In the U.S., the, the tax rates aren't necessarily the most intrusive part of the tax system. Frequently, it's just because of the number of people that become subject to U.S. tax, sometimes without necessarily realizing the extent to, to which they could become subject to tax in the U.S. on their worldwide income. And there's frequently, even if they're paying South African tax or tax in some other country, there are some things that are subject to tax in the U.S. or information return filings that are required that could have significant tax consequences in the U.S., even though the individuals may not be taxable in their home countries. So looking at basically who is regarded as subject to tax on their worldwide income from an income tax perspective, First, it's U.S. citizens. That is, anyone who's a citizen of the United States is automatically subject to U.S. tax on their worldwide income. And we frequently run into people who were born in the United States and therefore are U.S. citizens, even though they never spent any significant time living in the United States. And in some instances, one may even be regarded as a citizen of the U.S. because their parents may be U.S. citizens. And so even if they weren't born in the United States, they could be regarded as U.S. citizens. And so we have an awful lot of U.S. citizens who aren't necessarily living in the United States. And I have an awful lot of conversations with people outside the U.S. who say, well, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I don't live in the U.S. And it's frequently because they don't understand that they're going to be subject to U.S. tax on the same basis that I am when they're a U.S. citizen. So that's something to to definitely keep in mind and looking at. Secondly, if you're a green card holder and a green card, if one has a green card, if they're a lawful permanent resident of the United States. And if you have a green card, you are automatically also subject to U.S. tax on your worldwide income. Now, there's sometimes some relief that may be available Under the tax treaty between the U.S. and South Africa, if the person's also a resident of South Africa for tax purposes or some other country with which the U.S. has a treaty. But again, I frequently run into circumstances where people just don't realize this. They apply for green cards and treat it as if they've won the lottery which I can understand that there's a lot of good things about being entitled to permanent residence in the in the United States, but there's some burdens that come with that and some obligations that come with that, including the fact that you are, as a green card holder, subject to U.S. tax. And so we'll, we'll talk about some of the exceptions and such, but again, green card holders are regarded automatically as residents for income tax purposes. The third category is our substantial presence test. And that's basically based on 180 people who spend 183 days or more in a year in the United States. And what's important to remember with regard to the substantial presence test is that you actually for each year, and it's looked at on a calendar year basis. So right now we're looking at people who are gonna be residents in 2021. And their status in 2020, they may have been a resident or they may have not been a resident. But for purposes of counting the the days in the U.S. in each year, every day in the year in question is accounted as a full day. Every day in the U.S. in the immediate preceding year is a third of a day. And every day in the second preceding year is a sixth of a day. So that if somebody wants to know if they're going to be a U.S. resident in 2021, you have to add the number of days you spend in the U.S. in 2021, a third of the days you were in the U.S. in 2020, and a sixth of the days you were in the U.S. in 2019. And so it's a rolling calculation that has to be done in each year to figure if one is a resident of the U.S. and sometimes people will come and they know 108, they know about the 183 days, but they don't realize you have to look at the prior two years as well. So that's another area where people can become subject to U.S. tax with, without knowing. There are some exceptions that apply from this rule. Again, there can be treaty relief that applies in some circumstances, which again, we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. But there are also certain categories of persons that their days don't count, such as students. If you're in the U.S. as a student, your days don't count. And so we do have a lot of people coming in on a student basis who then aren't regarded as residents of the U.S. And for 2020, we actually had a rule for people that were stuck in the U.S. to exclude certain days that... Some people may find relevant, but that's the other way people can become uh, residents of the U.S. As I say, there are some exceptions. There's students for medical conditions, but they, they're, they're pretty limited. For example, the one for medical conditions generally only applies for a medical condition that arises while you're in the United States. If you come in for medical treatment for a pre-existing condition, then your days can't count so it could be pretty limited
0: stan i think that's a fantastic answer i think what you've done is lifted some of the complexities that renee was speaking about you've demystified some assumptions and certainly on the question of relevance and the travel restrictions that one saw on the back of COVID 19 really interesting insights there and suppose renee that you know if we then ask the question does it mean that individuals will be taxed in the U.S. even if they are living in South Africa, but they do have a green card. Would this not open them up to double tax? Thank you, Norsi. I often tell
2: Stan when we have client meetings that winning the green card lottery is a bit of a double-edged sword. You're not sure whether you have won the lottery or whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing. And I think, firstly... South African tax residency will be determined by our rules and in terms of our legislation and our tax residency tests. And the U.S. residency, in the same token, will be determined in terms of their rules and their tests. So in circumstances where you are resident under the South African domestic law and the U.S. domestic law, you are entitled to claim treaty relief in terms of the South African U.S. treaty. The effect of such claim is that you will submit that you are deemed to be a resident in South Africa and you will be taxed on your worldwide income in South Africa, irrespective of where the income is earned. Furthermore, you will be regarded as a non-resident for taxation purposes in the United States on income earned in the US. So the complexity from our side comes in where it's generally not advised that the SA-US treaty should be used to support the claim that you're not regarded as a resident for United Tax purposes. Because claiming the treaty relief would imply that you are not resident in the United States, which potentially conflicts with the United States' permanent resident status, and you will likely place your green card in jeopardy. You know We, we often say that we don't want our clients to discover that the light at the end of the tunnel is the headlight of an oncoming train. So I think we, we often speak to stand on this issue, given the fact that if you do claim treaty relief, that you, you may place your green card at risk. Um, and therefore it's imperative that you, that you obtain proper advice from a in, from a in country or in country advice in the U.S., because as you can see, it can become quite complex depending on your intention and your personal circumstances.
0: Renee, I think I love that analogy. The light at the end of the tunnel turning out to be a headlight. We certainly don't want that. But Stan, you already touched on exceptions in your earlier answer. And I would imagine that there might be some exceptions here as we talk about double tax Um, Would you want to come in here um, and just let us know whether there are instances where there might be exceptions to what Renee has just shared with us?
1: Sure. Yeah. Let me let me speak from the standpoint of the headlight that, that you're going to see. We will frequently speak with clients who have green cards or meet the substantial presence test in the U.S. And as I was saying, they are regarded as residents of the U.S. for income tax purposes if they meet the tests. And having a green card is just if you have it. But there is the treaty, as Renee says. And if you go through the tests in the treaty and you can demonstrate that your ties are closer to South Africa than to the United States under the specific tests that are set forth in the treaty, you are entitled to take advantage of this treaty for U.S. purposes. But as Renee says, That's sort of a fine answer from a tax point of view. But immigration lawyers always get very upset with me when I tell them that their clients that they fought hard for their green cards for are going to file a non-resident tax return in the United States. And this tends to be sort of an ongoing battle. Because it's frequently the best answer from an income tax point of view, but not necessarily the best answer from an immigration point of view in the United States, particularly if the people think they want to become citizens at some point in the future. I can tell you that anecdotally, we have worked with immigration lawyers on some cases where clients have claimed this position while they've had their green cards and have successfully become US citizens that if the immigration lawyer will take the time to understand what they're really saying and doing, and they file their income tax returns with the proper disclosures on their income tax returns that they're filing, making it clear that they don't intend to abandon their intention to live permanently in the United States and then for some years actually do file resident returns, perhaps after a period of of filing some treaty-based non-resident returns. We have gotten successful results for those clients who have actually done it. So I wouldn't discount it, and for many clients, particularly those who haven't had the opportunity to really get their affairs in order before they get their green cards, it's useful to do, and uh, certainly something to put on the table to consider. A couple of things I'll just mention quickly, these same concerns do not apply to substantial presence residents. It's only once you have a green card that you're worried about this. The other thing is that citizens cannot take advantage of these provisions so that if you're a citizen, you're out of luck under the treaty. You're automatically regarded as a U.S. resident so so that you can't do it. And the other thing is, even without the treaty, we do give a tax credit available for uh, taxes paid in another country on on that income so if you're paying tax on u.s income that's also subject to tax in south africa we will give a credit for the tax paid in South Africa, even outside of the treaty, which can sometimes be useful, although sometimes can get complicated, particularly when there's trusts around, because sometimes there's different parties who are regarded as the taxable party or different types of income get taxed. So it's certainly not a perfect result, but it is something to keep in mind as well.
0: Absolutely. So you've put quite a number of issues on the table, Stan. What I would like us to do is maybe in addition to this, put some practical examples on the table. If you are a US person, how does income tax work exactly? And if you could um, explain it to us in layman's terms as practically as you can.
1: Sure. It, it is a complicated system. There's no question about it. And some of that is tied to the fact that that we are a federal system of government, of course, remember, so that at the first level, we're talking primarily about the US federal income tax. But please remember that there are also state taxes that can apply depending on if one is living in the US in a particular state and in a particular municipality. In New York, we have New York state taxes as well as New York City taxes that apply in addition to the federal tax. And some states like California, the local taxes can be quite significant in particular. So we really need to look out for that. But basically, if you're subject to tax on your worldwide income, um, certainly under the federal system, then they look at what your income is under U.S. principles from business or investment activities all around the world. And as I had mentioned previously, there are circumstances where some things may be subject to tax in the U.S. that aren't subject to tax in one's home country. For example, in certain countries, the sale of one's principal residence is not subject to tax. But in the U.S. it is. So, as I said, as our rates may not be particularly high, the things that are subject to tax can be quite onerous. In addition, there are certain investments which can be subject to punitive tax rates in the U.S. that may not be taxable in South Africa or others home country they live in. In particular, we run into this a lot with respect to companies that hold investments that are regarded as favorable investments, perhaps from a South African perspective. But from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. insists on collecting tax on those investments on a current basis, and that can make it very difficult for people to actually compute the income that is subject to tax in the United States. Some of those investments are referred to as PFICs, which stand for Passive Foreign Investment Companies, and can lead to great complexity in how one's tax is computed from the U.S. side. So all of those things are are things that we need to look out for in computing one's U.S. tax at the end of the day.
2: We often say that an investment in a structure that makes sense from a South African perspective, you should do the complete opposite in the U.S. So that's why we can't reiterate <laughs> enough that clients actually obtain advice and pre-planning before they enter the US? Because often than not, we have to collapse investments and structures to make sure from a US income perspective, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze and that the investment in the structure still makes sense.
0: Uh, That sounds like very wise advice, Renee. I must say, although I can't see Stan, I would imagine that he might have taken that a little bit uh, as a jab. (laughs) Let me stay with you, Renee, because, you know, Stan uh, started to talk to us around the realities of your worldwide income. And I want to go to the reality of worldwide families. So there's the reality, of course, that there are US beneficiaries of offshore and South African trusts. Simply put, um, what happens when one has children living in the US and yet they're making distributions to them from their trust? How does that play out? Yeah,
2: so in all of this, again, where it becomes really tricky, not only from a South African tax perspective, but also from an exchange control perspective. Because unfortunately, in South Africa, we can't just stay at taxes. We also have to be in mind exchange control, especially given the fact that the South African trust does not have an allowance to distribute funds offshore from an exchange control perspective. So in the short terms, income in the trust will be governed by South African rules and South African rules will apply. So should the trust earn income and the income is distributed to non-resident beneficiary, i.e. the beneficiary residing in the US, they will be liable to pay income tax at their marginal rates, the maximum being 45% on the income received. Unfortunately, the same rule does not apply for capital gain and the South African trust must account for any capital gain or loss that arises when it disposes of of an asset. And SARS argues that the Carnot Principle does not apply where trust distributes a gain to non-resident beneficiary, mainly because the legislative intent was to limit the Carnot Principle to resident beneficiaries only, So based on this interpretation, the trust must account for any capital gain or loss that arises when it disposes of an asset, which will result in a higher effective tax rate. And to make matters even worse, in some jurisdictions, the distribution might also be taxed in the country where the beneficiary receiving the distribution reside. So to give you an example, and just to break it down a bit, because it's a lot of technical concepts, If the trust earns income that can be distributed and if there's a capital gain, the trust will pay at an effective rate of 36% and there may be taxes on the distributions received in the US as well. For an example, let's say the US taxes the distribution as income, it will be 36% in South Africa plus the income rate in the US. So, obviously, when our clients Structured their fares, you know, this would be one of the unattended consequences if you never plan for one of your kids living in the US or Australia or the UK. And the taxes could be quite punitive. Also, just to make things a bit more tricky, there are, on sure, two ways to take funds offshore when distributions are made. One, if, you're, if the beneficiary is still a Reserve Bank resident and they utilize their 10 million allowance. If you want to take out more money, you'll have to emigrate from a South African perspective, from a reserve bank perspective, place the trust on record, and then the funding of the trust then really becomes important as the implication of a self-funding trust versus a third-party trust are different and some of the capital may be stuck in South Africa. So we have to navigate through the complexities of the, the tax issue, but also bearing in mind that the exchange control also will have a
0: significant impact to transfer the funds from South Africa offshore. Renee, I think that's incredibly helpful. And Stan, I want to bring your voice in here, although Renee has already touched on some of the challenges, I want to maybe tap into the possibility of more challenges, specifically uh, to ask you the question whether there might be a problem um, that, or do problems only arise when distributions are made, Or could there be a liability by virtue of simply being a beneficiary, if you could uh, shed more light on that?
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about how trusts are regarded from a U.S. perspective, because I think it'll put this in better context. U.S. likes trusts. I mean, we have a lot of trusts in the United States, a lot of different types of trusts in the United States, and pretty much uh, as opposed to in some countries now where trusts may be regarded as being tax avoidance issues from a U.S. perspective, it's not particularly a problem to have a trust, but it depends on what type of trust. And that can make a huge difference on how it's taxed from a U.S. tax perspective. And probably the most significant distinction of different types of trust that I want to emphasize here is the difference between what we refer to as grantor trusts and non-grantor trusts. If a trust is a grantor trust, that means the grantor, that's the one who set up the trust, has retained a certain degree of control over the trust that for U.S. tax purposes, that person is regarded as the owner. And that produces very useful planning from a U.S. perspective, because let's say you have a South African trust, which is a grantor trust, or an offshore trust, which is a grantor trust from a U.S. perspective, If that trust has a U.S. beneficiary, then the U.S. beneficiary can receive distributions from that trust that, although reportable, are not taxable. And it's regarded as the receipt of a gift, and the receipt of a gift in the U.S. is generally not taxable as long as it's not a gift of U.S. situs property, which we'll talk about in more detail in a few minutes on the other hand, if the trust is a non-grantor trust, is not, does not qualify as a grantor trust because the grantor hasn't retained a sufficient degree of control, then the tax consequences can be quite onerous in those circumstances. And what happens in, in that circumstance is if income has accumulated in the trust and that's income is computed for US purposes and then distributed to a US beneficiary, the U.S. beneficiary can pick that up if it's regarded as current income at regular U.S. tax rates, which are about 40 percent. But if it comes out of accumulated income, then it's subject to what they call a throwback tax. And the tax can be as much as 100 percent of the distribution, which is by any standard a very high rate then that's an understatement.
2: We always call them the clawback provisions because generally in South Africa, throwback is positive, where with the clawback in the US, it's not that positive. No,
1: this is not so positive. (laughs) This is a good case of the train coming through the tunnel, going back to Renee's prior example. And in addition... When the trust is a non-grantor trust, and Nazi, this goes to your question specifically, there can be circumstances where the assets of the trust, shares of companies owned by the trust, are attributed to the U.S. beneficiaries. So they can have tax consequences relating to that even before they get a distribution from the trust, depending on the nature of the trust and what the terms of it might be. So it is a very complicated area which can have huge tax consequences in the U.S. The good part is, is that we can do a lot to mitigate some of these consequences and in some cases fix them when we get the opportunity to do so. And that that's what's important to know that what's out there and plan for it before you have the problem to the extent you can.
0: Renee, I'm sure you'd want to add to that. Yes, absolutely. On the point of planning. Yeah, so Stan, I couldn't agree with that more. All is not
2: lost. And like we've done for um, mutual clients before, there's a lot of restructuring that we can do with existing trusts. We can convert them to granted trusts. We can collapse structures. So depending on your circumstances and obviously taking into account South African advice and US advice, there's a lot of planning that can be done to navigate through the complexities and to To find a happy medium where your emotional rationale for setting up the structures and the tax implications, you know, marry each other. So we definitely do agree there's a lot, a lot that can be done with the right
0: partners we can plan for generations to come. That's a beautiful way of putting it, Renee. looking for that happy medium so that you're planning for generations to come. I I do want to maybe turn our focus now to estate and gift tax. And Stan, I want to come to you uh, with this. And in particular, when we're talking about estate and gift tax, what happens from an inheritance perspective or if one makes gifts? So maybe Stan, if you could just maybe lead us on that uh, from an inheritance perspective.
1: Sure, happy to. Our estate and gift tax... Uh, sections are within the same internal revenue code as our income tax sections, but there are separate rules that apply for estate and gift tax purposes. And what we're talking about here is that is who is subject to estate and gift tax on their worldwide assets and who's subject to U.S. estate and gift tax only on their U.S. CITES assets. That is, if one is a citizen of the United States or regarded as a resident for estate and gift tax purposes, then they're subject to U.S. estate and gift tax on their worldwide assets. If they're not a citizen and they're not a resident, then they're only subject to U.S. estate and gift tax on their U.S. situs assets. And we'll talk about what is and what is not a U.S. situs asset in a couple of minutes. But in looking at the residency standards, they are different Then the residency standards that I was talking about for income tax purposes. Citizens are the same. If you're a citizen, again, you're subject to tax on a worldwide basis. If you're a resident though, to that you look to whether or not you're domiciled in the United States. And domicile for that purpose is basically where one is living with the intent to remain living. So if one's in the U.S. on a visitor's visa, They would generally not be regarded as U.S. domiciled, but there certainly have been cases where people that have only had a visitor's visa are nonetheless thought to have been domiciled in the U.S. Similarly, one that has a green card is generally presumed to be domiciled in the U.S. because by having a green card, it's you're saying, here I am, I intend to permanently reside in the United States. That said, we have had circumstances where one who has a green card has really, for whatever reason, they may not have yet established domicile in the United States, or they may have left the United States and not really be staying there very much anymore. But there have been cases where people with green cards have been held to be not domiciled in the U.S. So the rules aren't completely as clear as they are for income tax purposes because the sense of domicile is really much more of a subjective kind of thing and for a lot of people. And sometimes it's hard to know. And sometimes the right answer isn't always to be non-domiciled in the US because of the exemptions that we have. And so to talk about the tax uh, just a bit in general, let me just say that if you are subject to tax because you're a citizen or a resident, You currently, there's an exemption of $11,700,000 that each person has. But if you're a non-resident and only subject to tax on your U.S. situs assets, you only have a $60,000 exemption. So for a lot of people, because the exemption for non-residents is so small, the right answer isn't always to be a non-resident.
2: If you're married to a U.S. citizen, does that, does that change anything?
1: It does change it. In general, there's an exemption for any assets a U.S. citizen has that they bequeath to their spouse. But if their spouse is not a U.S. citizen, it's subject to tax unless you leave the assets in a particular type of trust that's referred to as a Q dot. And what that is, is the U.S. is worried that if the if a person's spouse is not a citizen and you give their assets to them, that they're more likely to leave the U.S. and therefore the U.S. won't get to tax them ultimately. So the QDOT is designed to be sure that you stay in enough contact with the United States that they'll sure to get their tax money at some point.
0: That's a beautiful answer, Renee. It's a great question coming from you. But maybe Renee, just a quick comment from you on the South African perspective and how we see estate and gift tax, uh, especially as it relates to inheritance. Thank you,
2: Nuz. I think uh, if I just had to add to what Stanley just said, the South African position is only relevant if you are a South African tax resident with CITES assets in the U.S. And it's important to note that your position may differ depending on your status in the U.S. So like Stanley just said, if you've got a green card or you're a citizen or you're, st- or you're domiciled, then um, the following may not be applicable. So for most of our clients with no green card, with no links to the u.s they live in south africa but they do have we call them situs assets in the u.s and situs is just latin for positional site so it's commonly known in south africa when you pass away we levy this uh, deceased estate tax called estate duty not so commonly known as that the tax levied in the u.s on the deceased estate is called estate tax these taxes are generally levied in the U.S. on assets that are classified as a U.S. Citus asset, even when the situs assets are owned by non-residents. So even if you've never been in the U.S., you can't even show the U.S. on a map, but you've got an investment there, whether it's a direct equity or some up- Apple shares or a property your estate one day will be liable for a death tax. So unfortunately, the rules pertaining to scientists are quite complex. Um, They're also further complicated by the fact that we do have a double taxation agreement with regard to the deceased estates. And I think South Africa signed the agreement with the U.S. on the 15th of July 1952. So it was quite a while ago. It's a pretty old DTA, and the assets that are subject to the tax are quite complex. So in general terms, it allows the country in which the assets are located to tax such an asset, in this case the U.S., and there's a sliding scale applicable, 40% being the maximum. So there's a run-up from the $60,000 that Stan spoke about to $1 million, at which point the top bracket will then kick in at 40%. The amount will be levied um, over the 60000 threshold, and then the 40% will only be applicable to a U.S. taxable state in excess of $1 million. So the sliding scale works similar in principle to that of the South African income tax sliding scale. But I think the most important thing, for our clients to know is in south africa if you pass away and you bequeath your entire state to your spouse there's a roll relief from a state duty perspective so there will only be state duty on a second dying spouse similar in the uk they've got a rollover relief for spouses in the us if you are not a citizen or domicile, or all those fancy things that Stan referred to, then you unfortunately will not have rollover relief if you bequeath your entire state to your spouse. And that's obviously very important from a liquidity perspective. You need to make sure that there's enough liquidity in your state to pay these taxes. And I think a big positive, at least, you know, the, the silver lining is that when a South African tax resident passes away, Citus tax will have to be paid on a Citus asset in the US, but the South African estate would obtain a credit against the South African estate duty payable in respect of that Citus asset equal to the amount of such taxes paid. So I think that's quite important. There's no double taxation. You will get a credit in South Africa for the taxes that were paid in the US on that specific US Citus asset.
0: So Renee, I'm going to pick up on uh, on your point of uh, a whole lot of fancy things that Stan has been speaking about. And I'm going to ask him to comment on yet another fancy thing. And that is the estate tax exemption. Uh, Stan, we know that President Trump recently increased estate tax exemptions to 11.2 million US dollars. So how does this come into play? And what difference does it make exactly, Stan?
1: Sure. The exemption that we have right now, as I mentioned before, it actually it it goes up every year based on the rise in cost of living for 2021. It's now up to $11,700,000 that applies for U.S. citizens and, and people who are residents of the U.S. It is scheduled to expire even in the current law after 2025. And it's thought that it's very likely that under a Biden administration, it might be reduced even before that. So it's really in a state of flux right now. That's one of the things that everyone's very concerned about in the United States is sort of what what is the future for our estate tax exemption and other U.S. estate and gift tax rules that apply it's thought that it could be decreased to about five and a half million dollars or even below that, even perhaps three and a half million dollars. I haven't heard any proposals lower than that that apply to citizens. But again, this is the exemption that only applies if you're otherwise a U.S. citizen or resident. If you are a non-resident with U.S. CITES assets that Renee was talking about, then again, the exemption's only $60,000. It's a very small exemption that applies.
2: Yeah, and Stan, we don't feel too sorry for you back in South Africa because our amount that is exempt is 3.5 million rand. So, unfortunately, you're not going to get our sympathy with your 11
0: million dollars coming down to maybe 5 million (laughs) dollars. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I mean, there's been absolute shots being fired from South Africa all the way up uh, to the US uh, in this conversation. But we are about to wrap it up, and hopefully, Stan, you're going to be able to get out of the boxing ring that I didn't. I, I don't think you realized you were in. And so, maybe it's early in the
1: morning here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So maybe one of the ways we can close off this conversation is to get some of your top takeaways that you would like to leave with our clients on the back of this conversation. Maybe Stan, let me, let me kick off with you. What would you li- like to leave with our clients on the back of this conversation?
1: Sure. I think probably the most important thing is to make sure you do the planning that needs to be done. There's really a lot that can be done from a planning perspective. I mean, we've talked about a lot of complicated things. And the U.S. system is complicated and South Africa's system is reasonably complicated as well. And when you put the two together, it's that much more complicated. And so what the important part is that if you do get the planning ahead of time done, that I think you can come to frequently what's a very good answer from the standpoint of both the South African system and the U.S. system. And that generally is before your residence begins. The planning can be done much more effectively prior to the time it begins because there are a lot of good solutions out there and it's better to not ignore these things. Know what your status is. Know if you're a US person, when you'll become a US person and get that planning done ahead of time. And the fact that we're likely to see changes coming up in the next year or so with a new administration, particularly now that we know we have a democratic Congress as well for the next couple of years. I think that it's very likely that we could see some changes coming up. So we need to keep our eye on that as well.
0: Fantastic, Renee, your top takeaways?
2: Yeah, so you don't wanna get out of the frying pan just to get into the fire. So I completely agree um, Stan's sentiment and that's why we we speak to him very often on intergenerational planning. I think if you can make sure that the pre-arrival planning is done, and that you've considered the South African implications together with the, the U.S. implications. Your intentions and your wishes will be adhered to. Because I think given that death is front of mind with COVID and the, the last few months that we've all gone through, I think clients are even more worried about the intergenerational planning. And I think the the, the good thing is there are people like Stan and myself that actually enjoy what we do, and we can definitely, um, you know, we can definitely plan ahead and make
0: sure that we manage, you know, both jurisdiction and that we plan appropriately. It's a massive thank you to both you, Renee and Stan. Thank you for the wealth of insights that you brought into this conversation. Most importantly, for helping us to distill and to make sense of what is clearly a very complex field. To our listeners, remember that you can find out about the ins and outs of living and investing in the UK, Mauritius and Australia simply by clicking on the links on this webpage. Of course, I'm hoping that at the end of this conversation, you have questions that you'd like to explore. Further. And you can do this by contacting your private banker or your wealth manager. They would be more than happy to assist. That's it from us. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in. It's goodbye. No two families are the same. And so we encourage you strongly to Get in touch with your private banker or your wealth manager to take forward the conversations that have come out of this podcast. In addition to that, it's very important to get independent tax advice that is specific to your and your family's circumstances. Invested Wealth and Investment is a member of the JSC Equity, Equity Derivatives, Currency Derivatives, Bond Derivatives and Interest Rate Derivatives Markets, a registered credit provider and authorized financial services provider. The opinions featured in this podcast are not to be considered as the opinions of Invested Wealth and Investment and do not constitute financial or other advice.